What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike. Had a fantastic conversation with Cherie Curry, of course, the lead singer of The Runaways, the badass rock group that also gave birth to the careers of Joan Jett and Lita Ford. Now, first, I want to talk a bit about hardcore humanism and why we do these interviews, as well as why the conversation with Cherie was so special. The goal of hardcore humanism is to help people break free of conventional norms, find their purpose in life, overcome obstacles, and work hard to achieve their goals. And everyone we talk to on this podcast has accomplished these things, but has done so in their own unique way, with their own unique methods. And as we listen to their stories, we can get inspired and learn lessons that we can apply in our own lives as we pursue our own purpose. We spoke with Cherie because she's overcome and achieved so much. To be willing to be that bold and that brazen at such a young age, to be willing to step up and not only be a part of, but also front this absolutely killer rock group, she had to overcome sexism and trauma and the fact that so few people had done what she had set out to do. And she went on to become an icon, a powerful symbol for people who maybe are afraid and don't feel so emboldened. And she continues to create music with her new album, Boulevards of Splendor, which was released on Joan Jett's Blackheart Records and includes guest appearances from Billy Corgan, Duff McKagan, and Slash. She has also been an actress as well as an award-winning chainsaw wood-carving artist. It's like they couldn't find an art form badass enough for her, so they created chainsaw wood-carving. In our conversation, we discuss how she does it. Well, her special sauce, her gift is that she nurtures and connects with her inner voice. Our inner voice is that part of us deep down where we integrate and assimilate all the information about a certain person, issue, or situation so that we can make decisions. And an inner voice is a tricky thing. We need to not only connect with it, but also listen to it and let it guide us. And to do that, we have to wade through a lot of self-doubt, pressure from other people, and fears of the unknown. But our inner voice can be a powerful tool in helping us find and pursue our purpose. So let's hear what Cherie has to say. This is Dr. Mike at the Hardcore Humanism podcast, and we are talking with the great Cherie Curry about her life and her art and her art in different forms. And a lot of people may know her best from The Runaways and from her solo career, as a musician, but she's also been an actor. She has been also a chainsaw woodcarver, which is just fantastic. I want to hear all about that. So we're going to start with just, Sri. what was the first medium by which you started to express yourself artistically? Was it music? Well, yes. Yeah. When I was 15, when I joined the Runaways, that was, uh, but I always drew. It's funny. I mean, I've always loved art. I just didn't think I was very good at it. I was very mediocre, I would say. Well, now, when you turned to art, what type of process did you have? What type of expression did you have that you felt like you couldn't get in other areas of your life? Well, I would say it all had to do with fantasy, you know? I mean, when I was a uh, counselor for drug-addicted teens in the mid-80s, I had to sit in a classroom with the kids that were in this lockdown facility. It was a very difficult job, but I had to sit there and observe them for a couple of hours. And then I realized that, you know what, they're doing their homework. So I just brought a pad of paper and I started sketching with a lot of whimsical, you know, princes and princesses with castles and, and, you know, this 
harmony with animals and all this kind of thing. And I became really good at it with colored pencils, but yet I was unable to really make them lifelike. Mine were always very much cartoonish in a way. Unfortunately, no matter how hard I tried to make them more lifelike, I I didn't have the abilities that my son has to be able to do portraits and things like that. But but I ended up going to Price Stern and Sloan because they made children's books. And I went there to see if they would use me as an artist for, for their books. And they asked how long I'd been drawing. And I said, I've been drawing a year. And they said, well, how is that possible? And I told them the story about the runaways and my drug addiction and getting clean and sober and everything I've been through. And they said that, we, that they've been looking for their first young adult book. And this was it. So I went in there as an artist, but walked out an author. It's amazing, Dr. No, Mike. that's fantastic. Without that book, there wouldn't have been a movie. There wouldn't have been this resurgence about the, the runaways and all the, uh, the new generation of fans. It all came from, from drawing these uh, princes and princesses surrounded by castles and animals. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm curious because, as, as you said, you know, at that point in your life, you had, you had been through a lot in your real life, you know, you had already been on tour. You'd always been through, like you said, addiction. What made you turn to more of a fantasy model of art rather than, I don't know what the alternative would be, but something that was more directly taking on those issues. You know what, Dr. Mike, that's such a good question. And I have pondered that all of my life. I kind of believe a little bit in past lives. All I know is that if you're drawn to something, I think your spirit is drawn to it for a reason. I, I believe that maybe I lived back in those times. I mean, castles always fascinated me and they made me feel very much at home in a very, if that makes any kind of sense. I was not a huge Cinderella fan or any of that kind of stuff. It was more about romance, I guess. I guess I always got a feeling of romance from those medieval times, but, you know, not the killing and all the all the bloodshed that kind it was just there was something romantic about that time for me i don't know why well let's let's talk about that past lives thing tell me about your interest in that and your belief in that i think that's a cool concept i think there's a lot of things that are happening right now in the study of genetics and how stress and trauma are passed down intergenerationally that is maybe not directly saying past lies, but there's definitely things that are passed down. So I'm kind of curious how you got into that. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you know, we're talking about thousands of years of evolution. That's how we survive. That's how, I mean, this just didn't happen overnight. I believe that you can't kill energy. Our souls are energy. It just can't be destroyed. So therefore, I mean, I think that, I think that we do come back. I think we come back. There's lessons we have to learn. We have to elevate ourselves as beings. And I think I realized that when I was four years old, when my aunt had died and my mother took us to the funeral home to see her in the casket and my mom lifted me up and I looked down and I said, we don't die. We don't die. I knew it. I knew it at four years old. And my mother said, well, we, well, we do. I said, well, no, we, we really don't. (laughs) So now as an adult, you can look back and you can say, okay, I have that belief, but how as a four-year-old do you decide that here's something that my mother is saying, here's something that everyone's telling me, but no, I'm right. I know this somewhere 
deep inside? Like, how did you stick to that? Well, it's just, it's a knowing. I think we all know that. I think when, when you're born, you're really close to it. You know, when you're babies and, and you start learning, you know, you're very close to death, as close to birth as you are to death, to that, to that whole other world, because we were just brought in from someplace, were we not? But, uh, you know, I'm a very strong believer on listening to that inner voice. I think that there's helpers. I think we all have helpers. I know that I did. It saved my life. I was kidnapped when I was 17 by a murderer. I managed to survive simply because of that inner voice that told me and spoke for me, actually, spoke for me in the middle of, uh, of him killing me and somehow touched a nerve in this man that made him spare me. You know, and even becoming a chainsaw artist, it was this voice that made, I just happened to pass these guys on the side of the road and I was on the back of a motorcycle and, you know, I didn't say, let's stop. I just saw them. We whizzed by, but I couldn't get it out of my head. Every morning I got up, this voice kept saying, you have to go back. I'd go to bed. You have to go back. So when I went back and I walked into this gallery of these beautiful, I mean, you know, it wasn't the lumberjack crude kind of like blocky bears and things. I mean, these things were stunning pieces of artwork. And this voice said, you can do this, which stunned me. Because, I mean, never considered in a million years picking up a chainsaw and becoming a, a chainsaw artist for the last 20 and competing and, you know, winning medals. I mean, never in my wildest dreams. But that voice told me that I could do it. All right. The inner voice of Cherie Curry. I love it. I love it. I love it. We have to go back and talk about how that manifested in your life. So that first time that you're talking about, was that the first time you recognized it was when you were four and you were like, we don't die? Or did you feel like there were other times where you picked up on it? Oh, I think that I've always had that way. I'm a twin. My twins, just even to just use that as an example, I will send, I'm sitting, I think I was 10. I was sitting in the living room with my grandmother and all of a sudden I stood up and I said, my God, Maurice hurt her head. Maurice hurt her head. And I went running out of the house down the street. I could see them trying to carry her these two girls and she had gone head first into a, do you, the, do you remember that, that, that uh, game, what was it called? Elephant where, you know, you run back and forth, not trying not to be hit by the ball that, but anyway, Marie yeah, tripped yeah. and went head first into a brick wall and cracked her skull and she almost died. But I knew it. I knew it happened right when it happened. So I just, you know, there is a connection. We all have a connection. All of us do. It isn't just me and my twin sister. But we have the ability to be able to judge people, not saying, you know, I mean, we have a feeling about people. We know when there's a dangerous situation. That voice is telling us, don't get in that car. I mean, it's, it's really like, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. Go left, go right. You realize that, that saved your life. We just don't listen because every time we don't listen to that voice, something bad happens or we, or we didn't do the right thing. And we keep saying, gosh, darn it. Why didn't I listen to that voice? And it's so interesting because from an evolutionary perspective, you know, if you think about us as this like giant computer that's taking in processing information, it is so valuable that we would have just this singular voice at any given moment. You know, like you said, do this, do that. It's like, I, I just got a thousand pieces of information in the last five minutes about this person, but I need that one thing that says, 
do this or don't do that because otherwise it's, it's useless information. It seems on an evolutionary level that it would be useful and yet people dismiss it as on some level being, oh, that's not scientific. You can't go with that. But everyone kind of knows that you have to trust your gut. Absolutely. And you know what? It takes a few times not listening to realize that that is the one thing that's going to save you. No matter where you are, no matter what day of the week, no matter what time in the day, if something is telling you something, you've got to go with that. You have to believe that that is guiding you. Because I I do believe it a thousand percent. I mean, there's nobody could tell me that it's not true. When I was training to be a psychologist, when I first started seeing patients, when my supervisor said, well, go with your gut, I'm like, go with my gut. My gut, my gut doesn't know anything right now. And he was like, yeah, but you always have to go with your gut. And the thing is, is that with more training and with more experience, your gut is more likely to be right over time. But you can't uh, stop going with your gut or else you're lost. Let's talk a little bit about that inner voice. What drew you then to the runaways, to that, to that music, to that, that experience? What, what told you that was the right thing? Going to a David Bowie concert, believe it or not, I, I was only 14 years old and I went to the Diamond Dogs concert at the Universal Amphitheater. And also being a twin, Dr. Mike, you know, I mean, there's a lot of growing up that you have to do very fast. You're always compared to your twin. I was the runt, the skinny one. I was a little shorter. I, I was the one that was a little starved in the womb. <laughs> I actually, when I was born, I, they couldn't get me to breathe for over three minutes. Sometimes I use that to my advantage in conversations when I don't quite understand what they're saying. I'll <laughs> say, oh, well, you know, I, was, I had a lack of oxygen for three and a half minutes when I was born. But the thing is, is that, you know, my twin was the real uh, popular one. She was the strong one. I can also say my sister would, could, could be a cruel person when she was growing up. She just had a very hard demeanor. Me, on the other hand, was more sheepish. And, you know, I just, I didn't get the hostility that that my sister seemed to embrace a lot in her earlier days. So when I went to see this David Bowie concert, I mean, I had these, this long, I was, a, I was a surfer, this long hair, and, and I'd had something pretty tragic happen to me right before that concert. My, my twin sister had been dating an older guy, and she, which I didn't understand why she was having sex at such a young age, and I hated this person, but this guy ended up raping me because she told him that I was a virgin. He had a thing for virgins. And, you know, so I was angry. I was so angry because that was one thing that I could control. I wanted it to be, you know, that's all. Again, you know, the, the romanticist in me was waiting for the right guy, and that guy stole that from me. So I was bitter. And so I went to the the David Bowie concert, and when he came out on that stage, it was literally like the skies opened and this ray came down on me, and I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to sing. The only things I had sang was with at the Kiwanis Club with my dad and my my twin, you know, and and a little attempt on my three sons with Fred McMurray, and that didn't work out. I mean, but but that was that was absolute to me. And the crazy part of that was, is it was just several months after, well, no, it was a year after that, that I met Joan and, and Kim Fowley at the Sugar Shack, and I was ready. They approached my twin sister first, and she thought that Kim was a creep, and she told her to go get lost. 
But when they approached me, I saw them as something completely different from what she saw them as. So I was thrilled to audition for this band. Yeah, and I'm 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 obviously so sorry that that happened to you. I can I can say as somebody who's in the field, and I'm sure that you've heard this from other people being in in the mental health field yourself at some point. You know how important it is that that you've shared people like yourself who are more prominent have shared those stories because these are things that that tend to happen uh, in you know people stay in silence for sometimes their entire life and when somebody like yourself steps up and says look this happened to me it helps a lot and so I for one you know in terms of like seeing working with people and seeing how that helps I'm very appreciative one of the things though that I'm kind of curious about is we trust our gut. We trust our inner voice. When something like that happens, though, how do you keep your faith or your trust in that inner voice when, in theory, something happened that was terrible? Well, there were two situations. Both proved to me that that inner voice was right because I hated this kid. I mean, he wasn't even a kid. He was, he was in his 20s, right? I'm only 14. I couldn't stand him. I could already tell he was a predator and I was trying to tell my sister. She wouldn't believe me. She wouldn't believe me. And it wasn't until he did what he did that I realized, you know, I knew just by looking at him, I could tell. But my sister couldn't. You know, now my sister, by the way, now is extremely spiritual. I mean, she has contacts with the other realm, let's say, far more than I do. So we all learn at different stages in our lives. But again, that voice, when, when uh, I thought he was a, f- a fan, a friend, of, I mean, I, the guy with a, the, that turned out to be a murderer, I mean, that voice just said, he said, just jump in the cars I pull around to park. I was around all my friends. And this voice said, don't do that. Don't do that. And the thing is, is I thought to myself, come on. You see, now I'm, I'm 17 years old. I got in the car. Biggest mistake. Biggest mistake. But again, it absolutely proves that that voice is right. And that voice also saved me in the end. It's, so. it's, it's so terrible that, and, and we, it, it's interesting because we all do this to each other. I don't know why, you know, like we all want so badly for people to kind of listen and just be like, Hey, if your gut is telling you this, okay, I'm, I'm listening. And, and yet so many times we're like, ah, oh, come on, you know, this, no, you just, you know, and I, it's one of the things that I don't like about my field is the language of, oh, you have, ir- you're being irrational or you have a cognitive distortion or you have a, an unconscious conflict, you know, all these things that invalidate us. And I, I, when I hear that kind of a story, I think, God, like, why do we do that? Like, why are, why are people not letting you listen to your voice? You know, it's like we oh, have our own so agendas. True. Yeah. It's so true. And the one I hate the worst is projection. Oh, you're, pro- you're, you're projecting. You're projecting. And I just, I, I, I just want to turn around and say, shut up. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm not projecting. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's something that we have inside of us. And now I have absolute conviction about it. But it took me 60 years. 60 years to have complete complete belief in this. And, you know, the more time we spend alone, which I I strongly recommend to people. I mean, I always thought that I had to be in a relationship to be complete. It's so untrue. For some people, it might be true. 
some people need more than than I do. But I mean, I haven't even had a relationship, uh, any kind of intimacy or anything like that in over 10 years. I had to do that because I've, I realized that relationships were incredibly destructive to me because I always gave too much. I'm just, I, they would take advantage. They wanted to change me. It was that kind of thing. It was like, you know what? I have to see what it's like to be alone. And I mean, I've lived alone in my house for 20 years and well, not quite. No, because my son left right before he went to high school. So I'd say 15 years. I stopped dating 10 years ago. But I'll tell you, my God, what it gives you as far as not only appreciating yourself, but really getting to know yourself and realizing that that's enough. It's pretty cool, if you ask me. It's not only that it's enough, but one of the things that I always encourage people to recognize is that it's essential. I mean, it's, it's just, if, if you don't have, I always, I always say to people like you have to, I think, I think actually Keanu Reeves said something about it recently. Like, are you alone? It's like, I'm, is it something to the effect of like, I, I relate to myself or I'm in a relationship with myself. You know, I feed myself, I clothe myself, I go do things. And, and one of the things that I, I try to talk to people about is that if you don't establish that relationship with yourself where you know who you are, you know, you know, the things that you're into, you know, the places that you like to go, you know, how you like to feel, how are you going to navigate that with someone else? I mean, it's, it's, it becomes, you're just ripe at that point for someone else's agenda. You are so right. Oh my God, Dr. Mike, you are so right. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that you couldn't have said it better. Honestly, you couldn't have. And it's a, really a gift. It's a gift. We're given the choice, you know, and that's another great thing is we're always given the choice and we have to choose what is right for us. That's why, I mean, when I see some people like my wonderful ex-husband, Robert Hayes, you know, his parents were together since they were 16 years old. And I mean, without the other one, they didn't seem complete. I understand that too. But for people like me, like you, I don't want to sound like I'm separating people because we all have that opportunity to really get to know ourselves. We we're always given that opportunity. I think fear is what keeps us from it because the fear of being alone, the fear of being left alone. And, and I, yeah. And I yeah. feel like it's actually like other, cause I'll, I'll tell you something right now. Like when I see my kids spending time by themselves, I, there's that little part of me is like, oh, shouldn't they be doing something? Shouldn't they be something else? And it's completely <laughs> my, it's completely my anxiety, right? And yeah. the thing is, that's so weird. And you know, I've talked to my wife about this. It's like, it's like, I so admire people who can be on their own. You know what I mean? And really, like, not just be like, oh, I can, I can survive on my own, but like, really revel in being alone. And yet, it's so terrifying when I see that kind of independence in my kids because as a parent, I'm just, I just want them to be safe. And unfortunately, like safety often feels like, oh, here are all these markers. You know, they have to do this. They have to do this. They have to do this. And it's like, it's so bad. And I even feel myself doing it. I got to stop myself being like, look, let them develop, let them develop that sense. But I think a lot of parents and a lot of friends, they all, you know, it's like one of these things, oh, they're a loner. I mean, that's one of the first things to say when somebody's like, uh, you know, like, like with Columbine or anything, oh, they were a loner. So what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. You know, but it's often, it's got that negative implication right away. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when I was raising my son and of course I'd been through, you know, what I'd been through in my life and I had this instinct to tell him very young, very, very young, that there were very bad people out there that wanted to, to take him. 
and that I would never see him again. And that's why he had to be so careful. He had to really, really look around, be leery of others, of grownups, because he was a gorgeous little redheaded kid, stood out, really angelic looking, and, and he was very trusting and loving. He still is that. But the thing is, is, boy, was I given by other mothers. They just attacked me for doing that. They thought I was stealing his innocence. You know, Jake today at 29 thanks me for it because he grew up a little faster, but he grew up better. Because the thing is, is when you're walking around in this fantasy world that everything is good, that all people are good, that's when you get into trouble. And the thing is, is I didn't, I also did it from a selfish place, which I told him as well. I was being selfish because I couldn't live without him. If something happened to my son, I didn't, I knew I couldn't live through it. I I wouldn't want to, you know, I mean, I still feel that way. I mean, he's everything to me, but the thing is, is that I also made him grow up a little independent. And, you know, at a young age, he absorbed it. It scared him at first, but he became very bright, very fast. I mean, he started drawing in like two dimensions at the age of four. He's an amazing artist, but it opened him up to the world. I think at a very young age, very, very young age, realizing that it wasn't all, you know, poppies and green grass. It was the real world. And, and, he's, and he thanks me for it today. Thank God. I feel like once you become a parent, the first cardinal rule that you should know about parenting is that this is hard. Don't tell anyone else how to parent. Don't tell someone like, oh, you're robbing of his innocence. What, what, what do you know about well, robbing, someone robbing him of his innocence? This isn't your kid. You're not the oh, one yeah. who's going to have to like suffer if something happens. Like, Why focus on your own kid? You know? It's true. And I mean, the, my neighbor next door to us sent, sent me a book called The Golden Years about how we should let our kids grow up on their own without any real intervention. And it was kind of like her son was an absolute terror. But I would turn around to these mothers that would t- t- say, you're a terrible mother if you did. I said, well, I'll have my kid when he's 16. Will you? This thing about the inner voice and the, and the ongoing invalidation that we do to each other, right? It's like, yeah. it's like these are people who are not saying like, hey, you know, I'm kind of curious. Like, why, why is it that you're doing that? You know, I always thought it was better to do this, but you're doing something different. Like, tell me about it. It's, it's never that. It's just like, oh, I've got an idea and you've got an idea that's different and you're wrong. And it's like, why, you know? Exactly. And I mean, and I think that all comes from kind of this gang mentality that I I see. And it's kind of mindless in in my opinion. You know, all these people that just come, they don't do the research. They don't really research. they they, They don't do the inner work that they need to do, but they are the loudest. They're the loudest and they're the bullies, you know? And it's kind of like, I'm very disturbed by what I see around me, especially today with this kind of violence and all that stuff. It's, it's so unnerving to me. I want to make sure we have time, you know, to get, I want to talk about the chainsaw carving and where that fits in. And then I also want to talk about the album. And so t- tell me, you know, just thinking about that inner voice, like transitioning, you're doing music, you're doing acting. Like you said, how does that come about? Like, how does that wind up appealing to you? Because it's so different. 
You know, I mean, in some ways, well, when you think about it stereotypically, it's like, okay, what art is Cherie Curry of the Runaways going to wind up doing? It's like it, it, it has to. It can't just be like carving. It has to be wood carving, and it has to be chainsaw wood carving in order <laughs> to be like you know appropriate. So I wasn't, well, I, you know, tell me about it. Yeah, Dr. Mike, I mean, it's it's really simple, actually. I mean, and again, we go back to the artwork, we go to the sketching, which was color pencil, and then I went to relief carving. I, I happened to paint a steer skull on a on an old oak table that I found in someone's trash on the side of the road, and I painted this beautiful steer skull, like a Santa Fe type thing, and I just wanted just to carve it out. I wanted just to do a relief carving, but I couldn't on an oak tabletop. So I went and I bought a pine round at Home Depot and I bought a Dremel and I was even more scared of that Dremel than I was of, of a chainsaw. But so I was a relief carver when I happened to pass the guys on the side of the road, I was already doing artwork with wood. But the thing about the chainsaw is that I have no patience. I could never sit with a mallet and chisels and do it by hand. I need the fastest wood removal tool on the planet. And I just gravitated to that because my mind is always two steps ahead when I'm carving. I'm already seeing where the next cut is. And I think that, but it's funny being a chainsaw artist all these years, I realize I can't multitask anymore (laughs) because it's really so dangerous. Just one wrong move. You could be injured, of course. But so I, my concentration is so complete when I'm working on a piece that in my normal everyday life, I, I can't like talk to you and be making a cup of coffee or something. It's strange, but I've, I guess I've obviously taught my brain that it's really important just to concentrate on what you're doing one thing at a time and you get it done. Now, when you approach that kind of art, do you start with the image or the vision in mind, or do you just start carving and then you're kind of like, you know, they say like, you don't write the song, you discover the song. Like, do you just start going at it and then they're like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to find something here. No, I always start. I I already see it in the, in the log. I'll see the log and then I'll see whether it's a mermaid. I'll see her in there. But there have been times when I started something and all of a sudden saw something else after I had been carving for a day. I see something else in there. or I see maybe a different animal and I'll add it or I'll change the animal I'm doing. Or It's just my mind just sees, not all the time, but sometimes. So I might start with a mermaid and end up with, um, you know, a couple of dolphins. You just never know. This is getting back a little bit into the fantasy concept. What is it, because now we're talking about a couple of different things, like we're talking about flow, right? And we're talking about a certain meditative state. We're talking about fantasy. What do you notice as the contrast emotionally, or just like maybe more, maybe more holistically even, in terms of how you feel when you're in that zone versus just walking around day to day? I have a freedom that I can only experience when I'm carving. And that is when I just have an absolute direct contact with my helpers. I always pray too before I ever fire up that saw. I always get down on a knee and I ask God to carve with me, to protect me and to help me because, you know, we always still don't, I don't have the belief within myself. I don't ever believe I'm doing it alone. I always think that there is some energy, some something else there guiding me. I'll I'll always believe that. I don't think we walk through life alone. I know we don't 
because that voice isn't ours. That voice is, I mean, if it is ours and that's, that's the voice of the past, that's, that's our previous lives, that energy coming through, that's a possibility too. I'm not exactly sure, but it is absolutely real. It has that vibe of like the collective unconscious, like what what, you, what like Jung talked about. Why do all pictures of aliens look alike? Why does every culture have some kind of spiritual godlike creature? I don't know. When you're talking, that's what comes to mind. I'm kind of curious yes. if that if that feels right. Hmm. I think it's more like a vastness that, that comes to mind with a lot of bright, shiny little orbs. I mean, it's kind of it, it's hard to explain. But I will tell you one thing, because I think it's super important, that I'm always asked what advice I would give to people that are coming up in the business or people that want to... I have to tell people, never ask someone else's opinion. Because they have their path and you have your path. You can't walk that path with somebody else. You can't because it's not their path. So when you ask them, like I used to ask people's opinion, do you think I can do this? Do you really? I realized when I wanted to be a chainsaw carver that everybody was going to tell me not to do it, especially my family, out of fear that I was going to get hurt. And that made my brother, who I love and respect, and he says, you're not doing this, sister. You're not. And I said, oh, I, I am. And I have no choice. It is a calling. You know, but the thing is, is had I listened to him, I wouldn't have this house. You know, we make such a grand mistake. And fear is the reason we make that mistake, is that what is propelling us forward, that it really isn't real, that we need to ask other people if, if, if what we're feeling is valid. And they can't answer that question because it's not their life. It's not their path. So, you know, but so many people are stopped cold in their path because they, they believe somebody else's advice. It's so wrong. And well, again, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, like I, you know, in, in like having these conversations, it's to me, I want people to not necessarily be like, Oh, you know, Cherie's telling me what to do. It's more like, listen, like, what can I learn? You know, as an example, like I, I, we decided cause my wife had never seen the movie. And so, you know, we're, we're just watching the movie and within like the first 15 minutes, she turns to me and she's like, I want to do that. I was like, I, I want to do something like that. You know, like, <laughs> I, I like, and it was, and it wasn't, and, and again, if she asked someone right for the advice, they'd be like, well, you, you want to, you want to be like in the runaways. It's like, it's like, it would sound like that. But the pureness of the, the transfer of information was not asking the advice. It was just, it was just the example. You know and what I mean? she should do it. Yeah, and she should do it. If she wants to do it, she should do it. It's very easy to make that happen. And it, it, if she has a need for it, I, I tell her, please, please move forward with that feeling because it will give her great happiness. And who knows what else? Honest, you, you have to believe when you have that feeling, you have to believe. Look, I wouldn't have known that I wanted to be on a stage until I saw David Bowie. Who knows maybe if, if I wouldn't have been able to, to, you know, make enough money from my allowance to buy that ticket. I mean, there's so many, so many things that, that there are gifts that are given to us. And sometimes we just choose to ignore them or not think that we're good enough or And it's always based on fear. I think there, I mean, there's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. 
I mean, I have a healthy fear of that chainsaw every single time I fire it up. But the unhealthy fear is what keeps you in your house, is what keeps you from moving forward with that, with, with your dream. You know, we all are born with a purpose. It isn't your purpose, Dr. Mike. It isn't my sister's purpose or my neighbor's purpose. I'm born with a purpose. You're born with a purpose. And honestly, I mean, talking to you, I realize that you followed your path. Well, you no, know, and, you, and I and I appreciate it. it's funny that you say that because you know the way that you know my wife and I met was that I actually in my 30s had the same realization that she had. I was like, I just got to try this thing, you know, once. And actually, like she, we met the week before the first show I ever played. I think which is was like Kenny's Castaways or Continental or one of those places. And and I would have never in a million years if you taught if you told me that in my mid 30s. I would be playing like, you know, what was effectively like some kind of punk metal, like, you know, thing <laughs> I would have people and, and people all around me were like, what are you doing? Like, are you, are you that disturbed? Like, what's wrong with you? You've got things to do. And I'm like, I know, but this is the thing. And then, you know, and, and look, it, it, it brought me here because when I went into that world, the world that I had been afraid of, you know, all these yeah. people I had seen, like who were dressed in black, who had tattoos, who had piercings, who were seemed angry, you know, and I was just like, I, I, I'm scared of that. And then when I went into it, I was like, it's like, this is like the greatest thing that that's ever happened to me. And that's why when I talk to people, I want to talk to you instead of somebody necessarily from like maybe my field, because that's where I got the inspiration. You know what sure. I mean? That's where I said, like, just the things that you're saying. So my wife knows because that's a part of our relationship history. But isn't that funny that somebody that you would consider a friend would turn around and say, are you disturbed? Why are you doing this? I mean, it's so funny that we, I mean, we have these kind of these stones thrown on our path or sometimes they're small. Sometimes there's, they're little boulders that you have to literally walk around uh, or hop over, but they are constantly thrown onto your path and people that, you know, it's their fear, their inability. It's not their path. So, but yet they have no problem turning around and telling you, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? You know, and that comes from their feeling of inadequacy and their fear. Let's just get some time to talk about the album. So tell me about this album and if any of these themes are, are in there. You know what? Now, this is a whole different animal. I never expected to make another record. I never expected this movie to happen either. That's for sure. I thought the runaways were all but forgotten, but you know, that wasn't true. And I think that sometimes, you know, when, when something's really deep and heavy on your shoulders, you, you would rather forget it than to turn around and face it, you know, which I had to do with the book. I mean, having to turn that young adult book from 1989 to an adult book was something I really didn't want to dive back into and tell the stories I couldn't tell in that young adult book. You know, and here I've just lost my thought. There's just too much information flooding in. You have to ask me that question again, honey. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's totally okay. Did, you know, the, the, just anything about the album. Yeah, multitasking. I'm trying to make another <laughs> cup of coffee. See what I mean? I'm serious. I can't do two Ken, things at once. Ken has put the pressure on. Like, so, you know, if, if this theme of, of like following that inner voice, you know, I guess, look, how, how did that bring Oh, yes. Album? Yes. Okay. So now, now we have to look at the fact that sometimes when we're lost, someone is brought in to your life that's going to bring you back to that path. And that was Matt Sorum, who happened to call me. 
to do some background singing on his now wife's record. I was on tour with Ken Phillips, who we love, my, my, my publicist. I was on tour for the movie, and I didn't make it back in time to sing for him. But I did call him back, and I, at that time, had been asked to open for Joan at the Pacific Amphitheater, which was a huge venue. I mean, kind of like the Universal Amphitheater where I saw Bowie. And I had no band and I had three weeks and I called Matt and I just happened to ask him if he knew anybody because I had to put a band together. And he says, I'll be your drummer. I fell out of my chair. I really did. And he goes, oh, and I'll put together a band for you. And he did. I just brought my son on board, but he brought in Nick Mayberry and Grant Fitzpatrick from the cult. And, and we went and, and, and Matt, he just whipped everybody into shape. And we walked on that. And also, um, a gal that did, did, uh, you know, my, my clothing and stuff. I mean, Kenny was my manager, but never asked me what I was going to wear or anything like that. Kenny Laguna was, is also been Jones manager. And so he brought in a stylist and she made this beautiful outfit for me. And we walked on that stage and we killed it. I mean, we, it was a magical night. And then he turned to me afterwards. He goes, we need to make a record. And I just laughed. I, I mean, okay. I was, I didn't believe him. I mean, it's Matt Storm for crying out loud. I didn't believe he'd want to make a record with me, but he wanted to, and he did. And he convinced Kenny, and we were actually even offered a record deal that night by a different label, but I went with Blackheart for obvious reasons, and, and we made this record. So it was, Matt got me back to loving what I've always loved doing, but I had decided that my time was up at 50 years old. You know, I was a carver. So, and it, Yeah, and it's so interesting because the, what I get from that is, you know, it's not about giving advice. It's just, it's about doing your thing. But that has a way, you're talking about energy, that has a way of spreading out into the world, right? Because you're sitting there being like, oh, this is Matt Sorum and Colt and Guns N' Roses. But, but he's sitting there being like, oh my God, this is Cherie Curry. Like, and, I, and, and, and that energy that you gave him wound up then coming back to you. You know what I mean? And you don't know when that's going to happen, but it's, I, I always tell people, if you put that stuff out there, you don't know when it's going to come back to you. And it's like, you know, and I can just tell you from, you know, just as, you know, I, I think a lot has been made of the inspiration that you've given to women, which I think is very, very important because yes, you were, you were right at the forefront of what now has become much more normative. You know, back then the idea of, you know, an all woman, group was not something that was as common. It had happened before, Susie Quattro, et cetera. But it's obviously like super inspirational, but I think it's inspirational to everybody because people can go back and look at how much you had to overcome to get there. And so whether it's Matt Sorum or it's me or it's my wife, I'm just glad that you're getting that energy back in a way that's tangibly valuable to you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mike. And I will tell you, the album is the album I always wanted to make after I left The Runaways. I mean, and I thought I was going to close out my chapter on this planet, not being able to experience that great record. Plus it was shelved for nine years. I never expected it to come out, but now it's out. And if I never make another record ever again, I'm okay with that because that was the record I always wanted to make. So people are loving it. I mean, it really is superb and it's who I am. It really is. So it's, it's amazing how we really are taken care of. We really are. Those spirit guides or those, whatever, your higher power, whether it's God, we are taken care of. We just have to trust our inner voice and follow it. That's all we have to do. It's very easy. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take any work. 
you know, just follow that voice. And if you have conviction, follow that conviction. As long as it's coming from a, a good place, you know. Well, this is been absolutely fantastic. I'm so looking forward to this ongoing success. I can't wait to see what you do next. And uh, I hope whatever it is that you do next, I hope you come back on because it would be great to talk to you again. I would love it. I can't believe this time just flew by. You are so much fun. And thank you so much, Dr. Mike. I really appreciate it. Tell your wife to get up on that stage. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I'm actually going to tell her that right now. So thank you. So there we have it. Cherie Curry sharing with us how her inner voice helps guide her through her life. She has overcome so much and built a life of purpose and art and creativity that has endured for decades. And we can all probably listen to our inner voices a little bit more. The more we connect with our gut feeling, our intuition, the more we can check to see where it helps us land, and we can develop it as an important part of how we are drawn to and achieve our purpose. So get at it, hardcore humans. See you next time.